Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. It's on page 1014 in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Thank you. Would you just join me in prayer? Lord, um, we've heard your word um, proclaimed by Carrie, and we thank you for that. Father, would you just be with Jonathan as he um, now boldly proclaims the gospel and as he um, speaks and teaches as you have led him, as the Holy Spirit is in him, that we would receive it and that you would just um, give us ears to hear and eyes to see you in ways uh, fresh and new, that we would love you more and serve you um, with our true hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to see Peter's going to turn and wrap up these, uh, this opening introduction um, to, to his letter. Um, I love all things British. Um, I don't know, don't know why I've always been drawn to the nation of, of Great Britain. Um, I think probably 99% of it is the accent. Um, and so I, I wholeheartedly believe that um, somebody could come up here with an American accent and start reading the, the phone book and we would immediately fall asleep. Um, but if the guy had a British accent, we'd all be on the edge of our seat. Somehow it just sounds incredibly smart and like, you know, horribly highly elevated, you know, like, oh yes, you know, he's just reading, reading his names. The British accent carries, carries a lot of weight. I, I was in architecture before I became, um, a pastor moved toward this calling that God has called me to. So I appreciate architecture. I especially appreciate, um, architecture from, from Great Britain, British architecture, if you have an Amazon Prime account, you get to watch a lot of free documentaries. And so I've stumbled upon this nest egg of PBS documentaries that are being released in, in England on all of these famous country estates, um, like the Althorpe House, which is where Princess Diana grew up. Um, another house that they have um, on there is the Chatsworth House. Um, and if this is, you can't get much more of an English name than this, but it's a man named Peregrine Cavendish who happens to be the 12th Duke of Devonshire. And this is a house that has been in his family line since the 1500s. And so you're just sitting there watching this, and you're just blown away because the grounds of the estate, the acreage, the, the water features, the gardens, the house, there's just history steeped upon history upon history. And the, the architecture of it is just phenomenal. So it it catches me on the British side. It catches me on the architecture side. I'm just entirely enthralled for the hour of this um, this documentary as they're unfolding the secrets of Chatsworth was the name of the, the documentary there. Um, 
But what was cool and what I, what I noticed was there was a certain point in time at the very end of this documentary where they're just interviewing this man, the 12th Duke of Devonshire, Peregrine Cavendish, that he said something that was just like tangential. I mean, it wasn't even really part of the entire question that was being proposed to him. But it was this idea that he acknowledged that where he stood in history, the greatness of this house, there's something like one million people come to visit it a year, like as a, as a tourist attraction. Um, the grandeur of it, the history of it, it was just a, a tangential sentence, but he basically came along and said that he recognized that the greatness of this house really had nothing to do with him. That the greatness of the house and the, the attention drawn to it, the attraction of people coming there, wasn't something new to him. Just because he owned the house, this thing was great. He, he recognized himself as one among many in a long line of great men. There was the 11th Duke, the 10th, the 9th, the 8th, and so on down the line. His part is a part, yes, it, but it was a small part. And it was a small part of what he recognized to be a great history. There was an exquisite past to these grounds, to this estate. And there he stood in time, in the present, recognizing that the great thing that he gets to partake of now, in the present, rests entirely upon the glories of this past that has been built up and built up and built up by these various dukes over the years. And in a similar way, when we turn our attention to the last three verses of this opening section of Peter's first letter, he's going to press this idea in a similar way into the laps of his, of his readers. These believers, these New Testament Christians who are found in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, these believers have been grafted into a storyline that had its start before the foundation of the world. Their present situation of knowing the full glories of Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven wasn't something that was just new with them. Their present situation, their present salvation, the reality that they have a right standing with God because of the person and work of Jesus Christ rested upon something that God had been doing before the foundation of the world. Their present situation and the benefits of salvation found in Jesus Christ were rooted entirely in the past. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, we've been saying is a theological argument. A couple weeks ago, we said it's, it's really what I would argue is, is the nucleus, the, the center of gravity for this entire letter. And so what Peter does before he moves off into the rest of chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, he really comes and he plops this deep, weighty, this awesome theological truth, this theological argument right into the center of these believers and then everything that he's going to say beyond verse 12 is going to be somehow a truth that spins out, spins off of, a truth that is rooted in everything we've been looking at over the past two weeks, including what we'll look at today. If you remember when we looked at verses 3 through 5, Peter's argument was this, you have a future inheritance. God has caused you to be born again according to his great mercy. And because God has saved you, you have a future inheritance. You have a living hope. 
God is guarding you and keeping you for a great salvation that's going to be revealed when Christ comes back again. So he, he lifted his the eyes of his readers to the future and he was helping them see, yes, you were experiencing things in the present, but don't let the overwhelming circumstances of the present crush you. Know this, you have a future salvation. You have a future reward. There is something coming for you down the line. Then he followed that up in verses 6 through 9. He turned not only their heads to the future, Last week we said verses 6 through 9 was like Peter comes and starts turning their heads left and right. After he lifted their eyes to the horizon to say, you have been born again to a living hope. What you need to know is this promised inheritance, this future inheritance has a present effect in your life. Salvation isn't just merely a future thing that we long for and we just live in misery here and now. The futureness of our salvation is to have a present effect in our lives today. Relationships, work, parenting, whether you're single, how you do this and how you do that, how you say things, how you don't say things. Salvation has a present effect in your life. Then today what we're going to do is see that in verses 10 through 12, Peter has not only lifted their eyes to the future, then swiveled their heads left and right so that they can see how that future inheritance has a present effect. But today it's going to be as if Peter grabs them by the shoulders, turns them around so that they'll turn their eyes to the past. And what he's going to do is lead them toward the path of worship. He's going to help these believers see that they are part of something that is more grand and glorious than they could ever imagine. The salvation that they are experiencing and knowing in the present, that future hope, that glorious inheritance that is going to be theirs is rooted in a glorious past. Peter grabs them, turns them, To see the past so that they can see the staggering greatness of the salvation that is now ours. That was theirs for those readers of 1 Peter when they first got this letter in Asia Minor. Peter alone emphasizes this idea of salvation and how great it is over and over and over again. He he constantly is pressing before the believers how staggering this salvation is, how great, how, how incomprehensible it is. He says, God has saved you according to His great mercy. God has caused you to be born again to a living hope. You were ransomed from sin with the precious blood of Christ. Christ bore your sins in His body on the cross. Your sinful heart has been healed by His wounds. Jesus brought you into relationship with God by suffering and dying on the cross. Peter is is ramping up. We're going to see, and I'm going to say this a couple times, this is really an outburst of praise where Peter's just trying to lead these believers to see, man, you've got to understand the salvation that you have is staggering. The salvation that you know to be true is great. And it's going to tie in all the way back into verse 3, where verse 3 started off with this idea. Peter comes bursting out of the gate of this 
tight-knit theological argument, but he starts it off with this. God is to be worshipped. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that the towering truth of God is worthy to be praised is going to cast its shadow even all the way down to verses 10, 11, and 12. So this morning, Peter is going to drive home this main idea. Peter's going to show us in these three verses, 10, 11, and 12, that God is to be blessed because our present salvation is rooted in a glorious past. God is to be blessed because our present salvation is rooted in a glorious past. And we're going to divide up our preaching text this morning, verses 10, 11, 12, in three ways. We're going to see that verse 10 teaches us this. This salvation was prophesied in the past. Verse 11, we're going to see that this salvation was announced by the Spirit. And in verse 12, we're going to see this salvation is worthy of praise. So turning your copy of Scripture with me, phone, iPad, Kindle, hard, hard copy. If you need to find the, uh, a, a copy of Scripture, you can find the one in that black Bible around you there. But look in verse 10. We're going to see in verse 10, this salvation was prophesied in the past. Peter writes this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. See, the Christians of Asia Minor were partakers of a salvation with a glorious past. In these verses, Peter's aim was to guide these believers to see, yes, that God is good. And the good news of Jesus Christ that was preached to them was part of God's grand plan of salvation from the beginning. And because this is true, God is to be praised. God is to be worshipped. God is to be blessed. The grace that was extended to these believers in the present was foreknown by the Old Testament prophets in the past. Notice that these prophets we're marked by two things. When you, when you look in verse 10, you see these two ideas come, come forward. First, that the prophets prophesied about grace. You see that in the phrase that the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Peter tells the Christians of Asia Minor that the grace that was extended to them didn't just originate with them. They're Johnny-come-latelys. They didn't just step on the scene. They're not some sort of third wheel thing that God is doing. It's not like God, before the foundation of the world, tried the whole nation of Israel thing, tried the whole Old Testament thing, eventually draws the conclusion like, well, that was a big flop. We better, we better do something else. Oh, I've got an idea. Let's just start off this whole Jesus thing, and maybe this will be a new religion that will take root, and maybe this will be a good idea that just maybe will hopefully pan out. Peter's not saying that. Peter's saying this, that the grace that you guys know about now, the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners and makes sinners right with God was a storyline that was founded before the beginning of the world. And Peter's telling these Christians of Asia Minor that it didn't just originate with you. God's grand story of salvation by grace alone is the golden thread that he's woven throughout history. See, grace is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. And Peter is reminding these believers once again that this grace has been applied to them. They have been grafted into this great story that has been going on for some time. So these prophets prophesied 
about grace, grace that was to be yours, you New Testament believers, you people living post-crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These post-Easter people know about grace, and Peter wants them to see that this grace was foreknown by the prophets. The prophets are also doing something else in verse 10. Look in your copy of Scripture there. Not only are the prophets prophesying about grace that was to be yours and ours, but the prophets were searching and inquiring carefully concerning the salvation. The prophets are prophesying, and now they're searching and they're inquiring carefully concerning the salvation. See, God revealed to these prophets something great. And to know God's grace is to know salvation. And in hearing these things, the prophets wanted to know more. I mean, it just makes a lot of sense that as they are hearing God revealing things to them, that they naturally want to know more. Well, what exactly is God up to in this? When we keep hearing and learning and seeing these things about grace and seeing these things about salvation, the prophets sought out and carefully inquired about the salvation that had come to the Christians of Peter's day. This was no mere glance. This was not some quick fleeting um, sort of tip of the hat to what God was doing. When they heard what God was up to, even back in the Old Testament, something that was going to become true in the lives of Peter's readers, those New Testament first century Christians, all the way up to even us, the nuance of the words searched and inquired carefully is this. Is they spent a lot of time. They're diligently searching into this. They wanted to put forth active effort to understand what in the world is God up to. And already with these words here in verse 10, Peter is starting to, to stir the pot of worship. These prophets were amazed with this salvation. And you can already start to see that Peter's ramping up to verse 12 where it's going to just explode in this idea of worship where he's starting to say, like, listen, you guys got to know something that's really, really good about the salvation that's come to you. The Old Testament prophets, those guys a long time ago, they were fired up about this. They spent active time, energy, and effort to understand the thing that you know to be true. The prophets were amazed with salvation. They could not stop thinking about salvation. And the fact that these Gentiles were part of something that fired up the Old Testament prophets was meant to elicit a heart of wonder at what God had done. So not only was this salvation prophesied in the past, but look at verse 11 in your copy of the Bible. We're going to see this, that this salvation was also announced by the Spirit. Peter writes this in verse 11, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. See, the prophets were prophesying about salvation and grace, but Peter does not want his readers to think that their prophecies were something that they were making up. This wasn't some invention of the prophets. I mean, it's not just enough to come along and say, man, you should check out what these prophets were saying. Their prophecies are talking about grace and salvation. Well, somehow in my mind, I'd go, well, that's good. But how do I know what they were saying? These prophecies were actually what God was saying. 
How do I know that what God was saying was actually being transferred through these prophets? So as they were saying something about grace, as they were saying something about salvation, I can then trust and rest that their words are God's words. Their ideas are God's ideas. Peter doesn't want his readers to think that their prophecies were something they were making up. Rather, the prophecies of the prophets were actually the Holy Spirit at work in them. That's what Peter's driving at here. The Spirit of Christ in them, in the prophets, was indicating something. These prophecies were God's revelation to his people. God was giving a sneak peek into his master plan of salvation. You go and you read in the New Testament, you see this phrase pop up a couple of times where before the foundations of the world, the Lamb of God was slain, Jesus Christ was slain. This is idea of Jesus Christ and Him dying on the cross to save sinners. For those who repent and believe and trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ, this was something that God had established between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit before the foundation of the world. And as God moved forward in this history of life and this storyline that he was, he was creating, every now and then he would drop these little tidbits. It'd be like he'd pull back the curtain a little bit so that we could, we could peek around and go, man, I see something going on that is incredibly great than I could ever imagine. God was giving a sneak peek into his master plan of salvation and he kick-started this campaign by announcing salvation to the prophets. It was into this the prophets were inquiring. They wanted to know what person. They wanted to know what time. They wanted to know just, just who will be this Messiah. I keep, I keep hearing this idea about a Messiah, a, an, an anointed one, this, this one who would come and be the perfect sacrifice, the one who could stand before God and be that perfect mediator, who could stand on behalf of God, making God right with man, who could stand on behalf of man, making man right with God. Who is going to be this one? The prophets were asking this question. What, what person? Just who's going to be, be this Messiah? Who's going to be this Christ? They were asking the question, what time? What time are all these things going to come about? Are they going to be fulfilled in our day? The things we're saying right now, is this happening next week, next year, next month, decade, century, generation, generation, generation? When, when is this going to happen? See, the prophets were starting to get it. They understood that the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating something. That's what Peter says. They were inquiring into these things because the Spirit of Christ in them was saying something. And they understood that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, was saying something of import through them. And they wanted to know what it was. His work, God's work, through the prophets, had a design. It had a purpose. But the question we have to ask is, well, what exactly was the Spirit of Christ indicating? Again, it's not just enough to go, man, these prophets are fired up about salvation. What you need to know is what they were saying is actually from God. Uh, Then let's move on to the next point. The Holy Spirit, through Peter as he's writing the Scripture, lets us know what exactly the Holy Spirit was indicating to these prophets. Verse 11, the Spirit of Christ in them, the Spirit of Christ in the prophets was indicating something. What exactly was he indicating? Let me tell you. The Holy Spirit was predicting the sufferings of Christ and Christ's subsequent glories. So the idea that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
would have to die so that sinners can be made right with God isn't just a New Testament idea. Peter's directly saying that this was something that was known about in the Old Testament. The idea that he would have to die before he received the full reward of his glories isn't just merely a New Testament idea. It's something that was seen and predicted in the Old Testament. See, the answer comes in the last part of verse 11 to the question, what exactly was the Spirit of Christ indicating? And the answer is this. The Spirit of Christ was predicting, he was indicating the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The sufferings of Christ refer to his sacrificial death on the cross. His subsequent glories refer to his resurrection and his victory over Satan, over sin, and over death. The idea that Christ would have to suffer and then enter glory is a common thread found throughout Scripture. Man, I wish we had the time. This would almost be like a couple-week study in itself. The way the Old Testament works together to say, if you want to know something about this, this Messiah, this one who will come, this perfect sacrifice, who will be able to stand as the mediator, as the God-man, mediating between God and man, the Scriptures are replete I mean, I just didn't have time to go through to go through everything. There's there's life pictures, there's life illustrations. You can look at the life of Adam, Noah, David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Solomon, David. You can find it in the Psalms. You can find it in the Old Testament history. You can find it in Genesis. You can find it in the law. You can find it in, in the picture of Israel. All of these things, God was constantly weaving the story and weaving this idea to where we were to look at it in the Old Testament and go, man, I see, I see King David, for instance, and, and he's good and he's a king, but but he is falls, he, he fails. I, I need somebody who's better than King David. I need somebody who's, who's better than Moses. I need somebody who's better than Noah. I need somebody who's, who's better than Isaac and, and Jacob and Abraham. I need somebody who can come and do perfectly what these guys could not. And the ebb and flow, the, the warp and woof of Scripture goes back and forth and back and forth, flowing together in this beautiful idea is that there is one who fulfills these things. From the prediction of the offspring of the woman who would be bruised in the heel by the serpent, found in Genesis 3, all the way to Isaiah's suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. From Jesus, after his crucifixion and resurrection, saying, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? To Peter himself, preaching that Jesus fulfilled what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, and that God himself made him both Lord and Christ. All of these things roll into one to show what Peter sums up in one little phrase. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, was working through the prophets to show us that the Messiah, the Christ, must suffer before he enters into his subsequent glories. The suffering and death of Jesus Christ was not just an untimely accident, sort of like a big whoopsie for Jesus. Man, bummer for him. Wrong place, wrong time, bro. You know, like, ooh. Sorry you had to be like, be in that. Crucify and die. I mean, like, man, just wrong place, wrong time. I'm sorry that happened to you. No. Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, and it was established before the foundation of the world that he, the Messiah, the perfect sacrifice, would suffer before he entered into his glory. 
The way of salvation comes by way of the cross. And Peter is showing these believers this. So when we look at verse 12, Peter wraps up this idea. Yes, this salvation has a glorious past. It was told about by the prophets. Yes, it is foretold by the Spirit. The Spirit was the one at work. It was the corroborating evidence. You want to know that what they're saying wasn't just something that they were making up. Well, let me, let me tell you this. It was God himself, God the Spirit, speaking through these prophets. It was God directly revealing portions of his master plan through the prophets so we can look on this and trust that the Messiah, the Christ, who we know to be Jesus, would be sufferer and would enter into his glory. Verse 12 turns and shows us this, that this salvation is also worthy of praise. Not only does it come from the prophets, not only does it come from the Spirit, but it should lead us to worship God. Verse 12 says this, it was revealed to them that they were serving these things, not to themselves, but to you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels even long to look. See, through this verse, verse 12, you get the sense that Peter's ramping up to an outburst of worship. So we've done a bit of a disservice to Peter because we've divided his introduction, verses 3 through 12, into three parts, right? And so over a three-week period, we can sort of lose this, this overarching punch, this, this crescendo that he's working up to. But I don't want you to lose sight of this because by the time you start in verse 3, by the time you read verse 12, you are to... This is, this is the reaction I think Peter's trying to get out of us. Each verse we read, as we read from 3 to 4, 4 to 5, 5 to 6, should be pushing us closer and closer to the edge of our seat. So when we finally get to verse 12, we're meant to like burst out of our seat and just like break loose in worship because we can say, yes, we are part of something that is glorious. God has folded us in, grafted us into something that is great. Peter's ramping up to an outburst of worship as we're, we're going to come up to the very last sentence of this opening theological argument that he's been giving us. He has talked about salvation, prophesied in the past, salvation announced by the Spirit, and now he's bringing his big argument to a crescendo. And you can see this through the way he repeats the phrase, to you. It was revealed to the prophets that they were serving these things, not to themselves, but to you. See, so you've got to understand something. And the things that have now been announced to you guys, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. See, the, the message of salvation was not for the prophets, but for New Testament believers. And it makes complete sense that these, these prophets would want to know more about so great a salvation. They wanted to know if the things they were saying would be fulfilled in their time, but it was revealed to them that their prophecies about the Christ and his kingdom referred not to their own times, but to some future generation. Peter goes so far to say that it was for a people like you, you guys, you Christians of Asia Minor, the prophets, these guys that were in a different country, a different century, a long time ago, God loved you so much that as he was revealing bits of his master plan of salvation to these guys who you've never met, never seen, never known, he was actually casting love upon you by speaking to them. 
And we're meant to like just step back and go, that's insane. That's incredible. I can't believe that God would love me so much to reveal to these prophets that when they were saying these things, they were, they were saying them not to themselves, but to you, to me, to us. This message of salvation has been announced to you through preachers, filled by the Holy Spirit from heaven who preached good news to you. The same Holy Spirit that was indicating something to the prophets was the same Holy Spirit that was empowering the message of the gospel through preachers to these believers. And this is another point of connection. So not only are we supposed to go, well, that's great that the prophets are prophesying about grace and salvation. How do we know that was from God? Peter says this, well, you can know that's from God because the Holy Spirit was speaking through them. Then the question goes, well, that's great. How do we know the preachers who came to us teaching these words from the prophets were actually God speaking to us? And he goes, well, simple. The same Holy Spirit that spoke to the prophets about grace and salvation is the same Holy Spirit that is dwelling within the preachers who came to you preaching the good news that Jesus Christ saves and is the same Holy Spirit that dwells in you now. This same Holy Spirit was the one empowering the message of the gospel through preachers to these believers. And then he's just, this odd little sentence just floats on there at the end of verse 12. Just, just look at it. I mean, we're talking about the past the prophets and the prophecies, grace and salvation. We're talking about the sufferings and the glories of Christ, the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the preaching of the gospel. Then all of a sudden he's like, hey, and even angels are fired up about this. It's like, well, what? Like, what's that about? What do angels have to do with this? But you can almost, I don't know how Peter talked and I don't know how, how he spoke, but I can only imagine that for emphasis, his voice sort of got high and squeaky and sort of exasperated, Right? Do you, do you know that these preachers preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven? Things into which angels lock and lock. Like, like, can you believe this, you know? See, the message of salvation even attracted the attention of angels. I know this is going to betray my age, but any of you guys remember CNC Music Factory? Right? Yeah, CNC Music Factory. Everybody, everybody dance now. You know, and you break out into a move. Like, I can only imagine... Like at this moment, things in which angels long to look, cue up the tracks. I mean, he's just breaking out into a dance, right? Like we're meant to worship here. Like if verses 10 through 12 were one of those corny Hollywood predictable high school movies, this would be the point where everybody who knows nobody all of a sudden knows enough to dance in a choreographed dance scene. Right? Like everyone just breaks out into choreographed. Like that would be this moment right here. Things into which angels long to look, and all of a sudden everyone's like just moving, you know, into a chore- big choreographed dance number. Like this is the kind of idea that's be going on. This is the stuff of doxology. What is doxology? Doxology is exuberant outburst of praise, always rooted in. In the truth of God. It's not praise for praise's sake. It's that's true about God. Yes. And they break out into to worship and break out into praise. And that's what's going on here. Like verse 12 is a doxology. It was revealed to you. It's been announced to you. It's been preached to you. Angels want to know about this praise. And it's 
couched and buried within another doxology. 10 through 12 is supposed to be this other idea of exuberant praise. I can't believe that the prophets were prophesying about this, that the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating something. And this is couched within a bigger doxology, which I would argue you could even say verses 3 through 12 are a doxology for, for the same reason that I said at the very beginning of us talking that verse 3 starts out with this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation point! Peter launches out with, Let me tell you guys a little something about the salvation that has come to you. And the whole time, it's just as if he's just breaking into a dam. And, man, this is just good, good stuff that fires up Peter's soul. See, God is to be blessed because our present salvation is rooted in a glorious past. I think Peter is arguing that. Verse 3 casts that shadow all the way down even to verse 12. Verse 3 and verse 12, I mean, I would even argue are like bookends that smash and hold everything together with inside. God is to be blessed because our present salvation is rooted in a glorious past. Summary Peter tells his readers this, ancient prophets predicted the grace that would be yours You live in the great time of glories, which was long foretold. The prophets were ministering for your benefit. And certain events have now been proclaimed to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the beauty of Peter's introduction is that it is a holistic presentation of the gospel. He doesn't leave any stone unturned. He comes and he presents to something to them that is true, that is whole. And Peter has no qualms with dropping this weighty truth right into our laps. See, as New Testament believers, what was true, what was true about these believers of Asia Minor, for those of us here who are in Jesus Christ, these exact same things are true. As a New Testament believer, you have a future inheritance. The promise of eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ, free of sin and struggle. Our future inheritance is to have a present effect in our everyday lives. And all of this is rooted in a glorious past. For those of us who have turned from our sins and placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we stand with our sins completely forgiven. We stand before God as righteous. And we are meant to see from verses 3 through 12, this little tight-knit theological argument from Peter, that Peter is presenting us a lens, a matrix, a grid to where we are to understand that our salvation comes in the form of the past, our salvation comes in the form of the present, and our salvation comes in the form of the future. And when we grasp these things and understand how they interconnect and how they work and how they are married to each other and how they just work back and forth between each other, it is meant to evoke worship. It is meant to evoke unashamed praise that God the Father loves us and loved us enough to send His Son to die for us even while we were unworthy, unlovely ourselves. These things are also meant to prepare us for the walk of everyday life, which is exactly what Peter's going to do next. See, we're wrapping up this theological argument. I mean, uh, there's other teaching that he's going to get to, but as I've said, a lot of what the rest of 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 is going to be is he's going to constantly go, hey, remember when I talked about this back in verses 3 through 12? 
Let me tell you how this works here. I mean, the most beautiful case in point is he turns right on the hills in verse 13 and says, therefore, therefore what? Well, therefore, according to everything I've just argued, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully in the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's already reaching forward and saying, remember that promised inheritance that is going to be yours at the full revelation of Jesus Christ? Here's how it works for you now. You are to not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but you're to live and be holy because God is holy. And Peter, in a very, very real way with us over the next several weeks to come, is going to say, here is theological truth. Here is a healthy, holistic understanding of the gospel, past, present, and future. And this is how it's going to bleed out into every day, present day, in the now living. We must be grounded in the future and past aspect of the gospel if we are to move forward in the present, living a life that makes much of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for this time. Father, I ask that you would take these words and you would lead us and guide us. Now, as we move to this time of taking communion, taking the Lord's Supper, in Christ's name I pray. Amen. One of the right ways that you can respond to